Many of you know we've been going through the book of Job for our Wednesday night Bible studies. And the book of Job is a fascinating and unique book in many ways, one of which is that it was the first book of the Bible ever written. And that's significant. Now, have you ever wondered why are there so many chapters devoted to the words of Job's unhelpful friends, or I should say, his accusers? Why are there 42 chapters and not five? What do we learn in those long, painful debates between Job and his friends? Well, to understand the point, you need to understand, first of all, that Job and his three friends are actually incredibly wise. They're incredibly wise. And they've gathered together all their wisdom to try to figure out why this suffering has come upon Job. They bring in all of their life experience. They bring in history. They bring in science. They bring in philosophy. They signify the best that mankind has to offer in terms of knowledge about God and his ways. And do you know what the best of man's knowledge amounts to? Nothing. Nothing. And worse than nothing, they were all wrong about God and his ways. And we learn that if man is to know anything at all about God, about the purpose of our existence, about why there's sin and evil in the world, if we are to know anything about our condition, about how to be made right with God, about the glories of heaven and the torments of hell, if we're to know anything outside of our finite, puny sphere of knowledge, God needs to speak. If God would speak, then we would know the truth. Otherwise, we are left groping in the dark with our best guesses and with our flawed and fallen reasonings. In the book of Job, God does eventually speak. And what does he say? I'm trying to hit two birds with one stone. I'll be teaching this on Wednesday. He says, you should have known that you don't know anything. Let's see what he says here. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's talking to Job. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you make me know. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? And the Lord goes on for four chapters sarcastically asking Job, and by extension all of us, if we really know anything at all. The book of Job shows us how much we really don't know left to ourselves. And if we are to know anything truly, if we are to know that which actually corresponds to reality as God has determined it, we need God to speak. And he has spoken. He has spoken. In his creation, yes, that's where we discover that we don't know anything. And the knowledge we do gain from looking at God's creation is only enough to condemn us. You don't see the gospel of salvation of Jesus Christ by looking at trees or flowers or rocks. And so God has spoken elsewhere. He has spoken explicitly and inerrantly and sufficiently and savingly in his word right here. And in this word, we find all the answers we need for life and for life eternal. The book of Job, as the first book of the Bible ever written, serves as a prelude to the Bible, showing us our desperate need for divine revelation. You see, we were never meant to be the originators of our own truths 
We were created to be the humble recipients of divine revelation from the very God of truth. Our postmodern culture tells us dogmatically that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And at the same time, they're absolutely certain of the truth, that everyone has a right to their own truths. And the worst thing you could possibly do is to assert your truth onto someone else, unless, of course, it's the truth that everyone has a right to their own truths. But when you say no, there is an objective standard for truth, namely the Bible, that is oppressive and intolerant and unloving. And the question before us in our text this morning is this. Is there a standard by which the people of God can measure all truth claims against the false? Only if this is God's very word, then yes, there is. If God has spoken, then we can know for certain what is true and what is false. If God has spoken, then it belongs to us as his creatures to believe and obey and communicate the truth that God has revealed But how does the world view the Bible? At best, they say, yeah, it's a nice book, good morals here and there, lots of questionable things, but at the end of the day, it was written by man. So we can take what we want and leave what we want. It's just like every other book, so we need to judge whether this book is worthy of our consideration. This kind of sitting in judgment over the word of God. This denial of the scripture is not just wrong, it's not just blasphemous, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. There have always been those who attempt to undermine the word of God. The serpent's question from the very beginning of creation rings in our ears today. Did God really say? Did God really say? These were the first words out of his mouth and they will be the last until Christ comes again. Now, in Peter's second letter, he's writing to believers who have been bombarded by false teachers who sought to undermine their confidence in the Word of God. These false teachers have crept in unnoticed, as Jude 4 states, and Peter knows that he's about to die. And so the church needs to know how to defend herself against false teaching when the apostles are all gone. And we're going to see that Peter does not point us to the Pope or any sort of apostolic succession plan. No, we're going to see that Peter exalts the written word of God as the church's highest and sole authority. He lifts up the Bible as the ultimate standard of truth, the standard by which we should measure all truth claims. And Peter makes his case by addressing a claim these false teachers were making. They denied the second coming of Christ. In chapter 3, Peter quotes their accusation They say, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, Peter is going to defend the doctrine of Christ's second coming in a very interesting way. Let's begin in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that word for. That's important. Peter is connecting what he said in verse 15 with what he's about to say in verses 16 to 21. So what does he say in verse 15? He says, And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. 
Peter's saying, I'm going to write this down for you so you'll have these truths after I die. And then he goes on in verse 19 to talk about the prophetic word. And in verse 21, that scripture does not originate from man, but from God, and we'll get there. But what's the connection? What's the for, therefore? I believe Peter knew that he was writing under divine inspiration. He knew he was writing scripture. That's the connection. There was a time when the church had the apostles to help correct false teaching, but the apostolic era was ending. Peter himself was about to be martyred. Other apostles have already been killed. So what's the plan once all the apostles are gone? It's the same thing it's always been. Look to the word of God, and this is included, my letter is included. What I'm writing is also scripture. So, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is by implication in contrast to the false teachers who are doing that very thing. Look at 2 Timothy 4. These are Paul's last written words. And just like Peter, Paul sought to prepare the church for the time when the apostolic era would end. And so he writes, Preach the word. Like Peter, Paul points us to the word alone. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Myths, the same word Peter uses. Myths are fabrications and deceptions which originate in the mind of man. They start here. They're cleverly devised myths. The word in the Greek means to be skilled in creating or concocting something. These, again, are myths because they come from the mind and the imagination of man. The source of these things is from man and not from God. Here are some examples of those who speak in myths. Jeremiah 14, Then the Lord said to me, These prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. In my name. I never sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. That's a false prophet. We were never meant to be the originators of divine truth. Jeremiah 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. Sound familiar? Sounds like the Lord loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They told people what they wanted to hear. They tickled ears for their own gain, and they spoke a vision of their own imagination. Last one. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy from their own heart, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the wickedly foolish prophets who are walking after their own spirit and have seen nothing. They've seen nothing. These are false prophets. They're charlatans. This was common then, and it's more common today. Self-proclaimed prophets claim to speak from the Lord, but the Lord never spoke to them. Their prophecies come from the craftiness of their own hearts. 
And so many Christians are walking around today claiming to speak a word from the Lord. This is rampant in the charismatic movement. And you know, true prophets in the Old Testament and New were never wrong. Never wrong. They spoke with 100% accuracy. But today, self-proclaimed prophets say at best, this is their words, that they are only wrong 80% of the time. (laughs) So at best, 20% of the time, you guessed vaguely enough to hit the target somewhere. But still, 20% is far below an F. You fail. You're not a prophet. You're not a prophet. Do you know what happened to someone who falsely claimed to speak for God in the Old Testament? God commanded for them to be stoned to death. It's a serious thing to claim that God is speaking through you. We are never commanded in Scripture to internally listen to the promptings of our own heart. We hear just the opposite. We are told that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Scripture never commands us to tune into an inner voice. We don't find the truth in ourselves. There is an objective standard for truth outside of us, and it's this. It's this. The heart is more deceitful than all else, but the word of God is more sure than all else. Now, the apostolic era in the first century was ending, and with the end of the apostolic era was also the end of the prophetic. Ephesians 2.20 says that the house of God has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, you don't keep laying foundations after the foundation has been laid. You don't lay another foundation on the seventh floor. There was a time when revelatory and miraculous spiritual gifts were necessary at the initial stages of the building of the church. And by revelatory, I mean prophecy and tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And tongues, by the way, are actual languages. But Peter and Paul and the apostles of Christ were preparing the church for the end of that era. And they point us not to the Pope, not to prophets, not to anything else, but to the written word of God alone. Now, the false teachers were following the creativity of their own minds. But Peter is saying, we didn't do that. We being the apostles. We didn't do that when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word for made known is typically used in the New Testament not just for new revelation, but for divine revelation. Peter says, what we told you was the truth from God when we told you about his coming in power. Now, when Christ returns a second time, he will return in power. He came the first time as a humble, pure, spotless lamb of God to be slaughtered for our sins. But he will come a second time as the Lion of Judah, in power and glory, to overwhelmingly conquer and to reign as king forever. Now, how does Peter defend this doctrine? We'll see that Peter gives us four proofs to support the truth of Christ's second coming. And number one, he says, we saw his glory. We saw his glory. He says in verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses. What's Peter saying here? Peter, are you saying that you saw the second coming of Christ? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Well, how did you see his second coming when he has yet to come back? 
Turn with me to Matthew 16. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, critics will say, see, we can't trust the Bible because those standing there have all died and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Jesus was wrong. No, no. Do you know what happens right after this statement in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Jesus says these words and immediately the next event is what we call the transfiguration. Let me read it for you. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is a preview of Christ's second coming. You have the Old Testament saints, represented by Moses and Elijah, and you have the New Testament saints, represented by Peter, James, and John. And so you have all the saints throughout all history standing before this glorious Christ. And it's fitting that he displayed himself in glory on a mountain because when he returns, his feet will land on a mountain, the Mount of Olives, and all the nations will be below him. You also have both the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, affirming that this Jesus is the Christ. He is the one to whom all of Scripture points. So Peter says, we saw his glory. And number two, we heard his voice. We heard his voice. We heard the voice of God. He says in verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Notice the wording here. It says, for when he received, when Christ received honor and glory. Don't miss that. Christ never took glory for himself, though he is worthy of all glory. In John eight fifty. Jesus said, I do not seek my own glory. And he says, it is my Father who glorifies me. Now, could Jesus, as fully God, glorify himself? Yes. But when Jesus took our nature, when he added humanity to divinity, when he added a second will, the human will, to his person, he became subject to the Father's will. But Jesus, being fully God, can rightly pray, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And again, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is as glorious as the Father, whom Peter refers to as the majestic glory. The majestic glory. God is full of majesty and splendor, and so much so that he had to hide himself in a cloud when he testified concerning his son on that mountain. 
He also had to hide Moses, if you remember, in a rock and put his hand over his face as, as his glory passed by. And even then, Moses was only allowed to see his afterglow. No man can see the fullness of his glory and live. Spurgeon said, They who behold Christ in heaven, even from the outermost rank of the saints, are to be envied above all earthly kings and princes. One said to an old saint, You cannot see God's face and live. Then he replied, Let me see God's face and die, and I will be glad enough to die a hundred deaths if I may but see Christ. Christ pulled back just a fraction of that veil on that mountain, and Peter said his face shone like the sun. Well, if Christ were to cast aside the veil altogether, he would shine brighter than 10,000 suns. In the new heavens, in the new earth, there will be no sun. Christ's glory will fill the cosmos, and it will render the sun useless in that day. It wouldn't add any light to the light that Christ shines. Christ is altogether glorious. Now, out of all the things the Father could have said in that moment, why does he say these words? When Peter, James, and John heard the words, this is my beloved son, what would they have known by this? They would have remembered Psalm 2. Psalm 2, God says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then the son speaks and quotes the father. And he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. When the son of God comes, he will reign as king forever. What about the phrase, in whom I am well pleased? This is very likely a reference to Isaiah 42.1. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, God the Father is alluding to the fact that this Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who will bear all our iniquities, is also the one who will finally bring justice to the nations when he comes to reign as king. Now you'd think, if you were Peter, that after seeing with your own eyes a glimpse of Christ's second coming, and after hearing with your own ears the voice of God himself testifying to this coming king that nothing in the world can be more certain than that. But you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. There is something more certain than all of that put together. Peter says, number three, we have his word. We have his word, verse 19. And we have as more sure the prophetic word. It's sad how many translations get this wrong. The NLT says it this way. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence. As if to say, now we can believe the scriptures because we had this experience. No. The NIV says it this way. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. As if to say, scripture is on an equal level with our experience. No. Here's a lesson in Koine Greek. The word Peter wrote in the Greek is the word bebeoteron. It comes from the word bebeos 
When you see teron, tero, teros, terois, terus appended to a word, that's telling you that the writer is using it comparatively. Comparatively, for example, Mark 10.25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And look at the word easier in the Greek, eukopateron, the, the comparative use of that adjective. Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very least of all the saints. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. This is well known. This is how it's used in the Greek. You guys see it up there? Good, good, okay. And so Peter, without a doubt, without a doubt, is saying that the prophetic word, the word of God, in comparison to what I saw with my own eyes and heard with my own ears, is more certain, more sure than my experience on that mountain. Now, is the verbal witness of a genuine apostle of Christ a sure testimony of the truth? Yes, but the word of God is more. Is seeing with your own eyes the very glory of Christ a sure testimony of the truth? Yes, but the word of God is more. Is hearing with your own ears the voice of God a sure testimony? Yes, but right now the written word of God is more. Whatever you think is sure, this is more. This is more. If the Apostle Paul were to be risen from the dead and show up here and make a claim about God or Jesus or the gospel, we would go to the word of God to see if these things are really so. If an angel appeared and make a claim about God or Jesus or the gospel, we would weigh that message in the balance of God's written word. I wish the church tested the words of the pastors in this county and across the world. Don't believe everything I say. Test it by the word of God. Be good Bereans. Now, it says the prophetic word. Does that just refer to the prophets of the Old Testament and not those of the New? What would Peter have meant by this? That's the question. Well, again, Peter knew that his own writing was scripture. We see that connection in verse 15. But if you look at chapter 3, Peter says that there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, the rest of the scriptures. Peter knew that Paul's writings were also inspired by God. And so when Peter refers to the prophetic word, he's referring to all of scripture, both old and new. And he says, and we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He says, you do well, you do right to pay attention to the word of God as one in pitch black darkness does well to pay attention to a lamp. This word for dark doesn't just mean dark. It means filthy and miserable. Imagine wallowing in the muck in a cold, dark cave far below the earth with no light and you have no idea where you are. That is the condition of everyone who does not pay attention to this word. They will perish in that condition unless they have a light to guide their way out. A lamp is a life-saving device. Without the word of God, you don't see the way. You don't see the truth. You have no idea you have no way of knowing about the eternal life which is found in Christ Jesus alone. Yes, we sojourn in a dark world, but God has not left us in the dark. He has given us a light. He's given us a lamp, and this is it. It's only one. It's the word of God. 
the psalmist says, Your word, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So Peter says, you would do well to pay attention to the word of God until the day dawns, until we see the sun, until we see Christ, and until then all we have is this lamp, and this lamp is enough. It will get you home. It'll get you home. There'll be no more need for this lamp when we stand in the light of Christ. You don't need a lamp when you're standing below the blazing sun. Use this lamp, Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The morning star is a reference to Christ. Our hearts will be changed to reflect the brilliant light of Christ in the very moment that we see him. The sight of him will change everything. Look at 1 John 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The moment we see Christ, we will be changed. We'll be changed. For every believer, the point is this, until you see Christ, whether it be at death or in the rapture or in the second coming, until then, we need this word. We need the Bible. So Peter says, we know that Christ is coming again because, number one, we saw his glory. Number two, we heard his voice. Number three, we have his, wor- his word. And just so we're clear, number four, Scripture is the very word of God. He says in verse 20, Know this, first of all. Above all else that you think you need to know, this comes first. What Peter is about to say is of primary importance. He says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. That word for Scripture is graphe in the Greek. It means writing. So Peter is not referring to oral prophecies or oral teaching. It is the written word of God that is of primary importance. Now, this is very important. That word, which is translated comes in the Greek, is the word genetai, which means to come into being or to originate. We're talking about the source of Scripture, not the interpretation of it. No portion of Scripture, Old Testament or New, originated from man. Verse 21 makes this very clear. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The NIV translates it as no prophecy of Scripture had its origin in the human will. That's exactly what Peter is saying. We're talking about the origin of the Bible, whether it's from God or from man. Now, we've all heard the argument. It goes like this. All men are fallible. Men wrote the Bible. Therefore, the Bible is fallible. Now, I appreciate the biblical view of man. If the Bible is a product of man, if the Word of God, I should say, if the Bible originated from the mind and will of man, I would agree. Man cannot produce an infallible, inerrant, divinely inspired text. But those who say such things fail to consider the omnipotence of God. Is there anything too difficult for God. Can God use sinful men to write an inerrant word? Yes. Can God use a crooked stick to draw a straight line? Yes. Yes. The human element is no barrier. 
It's no barrier. Now, why is Peter mentioning this? Peter knows that the church will need a high view of Scripture to defend herself against false teaching. And again, Paul did the same before he died. And in his last letter, he writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God. The Word of God is God's very Word to man. From his mind and from his mouth, all Scripture is theopneustos, Uh, It's breathed out by God. We say it's inspired by God, but it's actually expired. It's breathed out by God, but we just don't say that because if you say Scripture is expired, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) It's breathed out by God. The same breath that created all things, the same breath that gave us life, is the same breath that gave us the Scripture. God alone is the source. Heed the words of dying men, especially these two, Peter and Paul, Uh, Both of them, in their final hours, point us to the word of God alone. Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. Men were involved, yes. As much as a pencil is involved in a writer's book, God used 40 different writing instruments, 40 different men, but there is one mind behind it all. God is the author. And so, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, carried along. Men wrote, yes, but the Holy Spirit of God carried them to their proper destination. They arrived exactly to the place where God wanted them. God was the active one. He was carrying them, and men were passively being carried along, and yet they wrote freely. They wrote freely. God didn't need to suppress their literary styles or their languages or their personalities to have them write exactly what he wanted them to write. Some examples of this. Acts 1, the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. Acts 28, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet, to your fathers. Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. Time would fail me if we went through all the places in Scripture where the prophets claimed to speak from God. Someone counted over 3,800 times. The Bible is God's very word. And so if you're waiting for God to speak to you audibly or for a miracle to happen right in front of you before you believe the Bible or before you come to faith in Christ, know that that is a myth. In Luke 16, we read of the parable of the rich man who went to hell. And he said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, To him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. For those of you outside of Christ, you don't need to see a miracle. God does not need to prove to you that this is his very word. When you stand before God on the day of judgment, what will you say? Lord, if only I heard a voice from heaven, I would have repented Of my sins, or Lord, if only I had seen your glory displayed before my eyes, that would have been enough for me to trust in Christ. No, this is enough, and this is all you will be given. 
The word of God is more sure than anything else you could want to see or hear from God. And if you don't pay heed to this book, there is nothing else in all of creation that will convince you. The word of God is God's very word to you. As if he were to lift up the roof of this building, point at you and say, repent and believe in my son or you will die in your sins. Just last week, I tried to point someone to the word of God. This person said that she's going through too much to read the Bible at this time. She said she'd find more comfort by, quote, listening to God. And I said, then read the Bible. Read the Bible. People are blurring the lines. They're confusing their imaginations with the word of God. They're confusing their own thoughts with the word of God. If you're a part of a system, a religion, that diminishes the word of God in any way, run. Run. If you're a part of a system of religion that elevates anything to the level of the word of God or even above the word of God, run. Scripture is God's very word. It's more sure than anything else that God has given us, and it will get you home. It'll get you home. So what's our response this morning? Number one, pay attention to this book. Pay attention to this book. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian While he was in the city of destruction, he came to know of his true condition, what he called the burden of sin on his back, this burden which he said would sink him lower than the grave. And the world asks him, how camest thou by thy burden at first? It's old English. In other words, how how did you come to know that you have this sinful, hell-bound condition? How did you come to know this truth? Where did you find this truth? See, the world can't get this knowledge. And Christian responds by reading this book in my hands. Again, you can't come to know these things by experience or science or philosophy. God needs to speak. And he has spoken. He's given us a lamp. And if you pay attention to it, it will lead you to Christ until he comes. That's number one. Number two, be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord has been on a long journey, as it were, and he will return. And may he find you faithfully engaged in his service, so that when he does appear, he will say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus is coming soon, and his reward is with him. And if you're in Christ... Keep your eyes fixed on him. 1 John 3, 3 says that everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. There's a sanctifying effect to looking to Christ's return. But if you are still outside of Christ, know that the Bible says that God is holy and he demands perfect holiness to enter into his kingdom. And you have already fallen short a thousand times this morning of that perfect standard. And there's nothing you can do in your own strength to make it right. You've already fallen short. But the Bible says that Christ, who is fully God, became a man. He took our nature upon himself and he lived that perfectly righteous life in the place of sinful men so that he can credit his own righteousness to their account. For all who believe in him, he takes his record of perfect righteousness and he credits it to your account. And he takes your sin and he credits it 
to his account. He pays for the sin of all who would believe in him, and he paid for it in full on that cross. And he died the death that we should have died under the full weight of the wrath of God for our sin. He died and was buried, and was buried for three days, and he rose again on the third day, and he was seen by more than 500 witnesses. And after that, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated right now at the right hand of God, All power and dominion and judgment are in his hands to execute. And he will return. This is certain. He will return one day and exercise his dominion over all nations. He will bring in his everlasting kingdom and reign as king forever. And so bow before this king before he comes. He is holy and we are not. If you remain in the state that you're in, outside of Christ... When he returns or when you see him before your last breath, know that the Bible says that you will suffer in hell forever. It's not unloving for me to say this. No, love compels me to tell you the truth. The Bible gives us a very specific narrow road, narrow gate, one door, one way, truth that saves. And the Bible says there is no other way. It's not bigoted. It's not unloving. It's the truth. It is written. It is written. I'll close with this. God says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Do homage to the sun. Bend the knee to the sun. Submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The king is coming, and yet his arms are still wide open to receive sinners. So repent and turn from your sins and trust in Christ, and you will be saved. That is the promise we find in God's very word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark without a lamp. Thank you that your word is all-sufficient. It's a lamp that effectively shines to Christ. It lights the way out of this mire of sin that we were wallowing in. It leads us on the road to eternal life. May your people in this church grow to have the highest confidence in your word. May they look to your word each day and may they behold your glory in it as in a mirror and may they reflect your light and your truth in this dark world. May we be a church that stands for the truth as you have revealed it and if there's anyone here who has yet to turn from their sin and trust in Christ, may today be the day. You need only to speak light into their hearts and the light of the gospel of Christ will shine. And so I pray that you would shine his light in hearts this morning Jesus, you are coming soon. And as we wait for you, find us faithfully engaged in your service for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.